Pour some sugar on me. It's the Infuse Show brought to you by Terrapin Select. Terrapin Select CBD for all your health and wellness needs. Shop TerrapinSelect.com as well as our fake sponsor, Meh Edibles. They're not that great. They're not that bad. They're <laughs> meh. Let's do the show. <laughs> Guys, today back with me here in Delaware, who, Delaware, Delaware, Francesca and Mike. Welcome back. It's great to see you. Always good to be good seen to be and here. to see. Oh, guys, look, we're we're all really excited today. You guys are, are it's almost like going home. You guys know our uh, today's guest, but I've got to introduce uh, our audience to today's guest. He is an actor. He is a celebrated, best-selling New York Times and Wall Street Journal author of nine books, including the uh, celebrated Book Yourself Solid, as well as the CEO and co-founder of Heroic Public Speaking right there in Lambertville, which you guys are both graduates of. You got so, that right. Got please join me in welcoming Mr. Michael Port to the Infuse Show. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, I, I just should clarify. I, uh, I'm an actor in so far as that all human beings are actors to some degree. I was a professional actor ooh, about 30 years ago. So I, I haven't done that in a long time. Like if yesterday. Calls, I'm happy yeah. to go, but other than that. No, Michael, anybody with an IMDB page, brother. I looked at it, I was impressed. <laughs> I, I, I love actors. You, but saw, I'm you, so, saw my, you saw my pictures with hair? Yeah, yeah. I saw, I, and, I, and you know, we have some Sex in the City fans here too. And we're like, oh my God, he was on Sex in the City. So yes, everybody's excited about this one. Um, listen, <laughs> I know our audience and uh, some of the guests that we've had on, uh, Michael, are really interested in, in the topic today. Because a lot of people that we talk to or a lot of people that listen to us all have cannabis stories to tell. It's a matter of, you know, how effective they can be while telling those stories. So you're doing us a tremendous service joining us here today on the show. And, and I just want to repeat my thanks uh, to start us out. Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I am doing a tremendous service. <laughs> yeah. Right now. Actually, that's that's yet to be determined. We'll have to see how it goes. Okay. I have a good feeling, though, that you might know a, just a little bit about the topic of communication. I'll take the um, over on that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Michael, Michael and I and Mike all know each other because Mike and I attended um, Heroic Public Speaking, which is you know, just the most incredible public speaking training, world-class, um, that is fortunately for us only an hour and a half away and um, been through many sessions and learned so much. And when we were talking about bringing Michael on, it made so much sense because there are so many ways to communicate, so many things to communicate in the cannabis community. And there is so much room for growth with that. And it's important. It's important stuff that we're talking about because, you know, just a, the very first thing that I wanted to cover is that there are people that are in cannabis because they have this personal connection to the plant. And when they have that personal co connection, they have a very usually personal story. It is um, just one of our most recent guests, Nikki Lawley, who is a pediatric nurse, suffered a traumatic brain injury and um, was really on the brink of of the edge and saved herself by discovering cannabis. And she had this incredible story. And I thought that's the kind of thing that changes hearts and minds that ends the stigma of cannabis, which has done so much damage to people and to this country. And so we wanna help people, first and foremost, help people tell better stories, help those stories that they have, those connections with the plant to become connections with people to change lives and to change how we're viewing this plant. Um, I think, you know, we're there, 
but we can be better. We can go beyond yeah. where we are. And so, Michael, I think the first question for you is when we're talking about communication and we're telling these personal stories, what exactly is it that we can do to help those stories become transformational for our audience, whether that's a podcast, a live audience, a one-on-one -on -one story? I mean, that's, that's what you've done for, for the coaching with me and Mike and certainly every other heroic public speaking person. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Communication is hard. It's not easy. The issue is that we all talk all the time. We think we're really good at communicating because we know how to talk. Mm -hmm. But talking and communicating are two very different things. Additionally, storytelling is really hard. And we often think we're better at telling stories than we actually are because we have experienced the story ourselves and it has a lot of meaning to us. So it's emotionally rich and emotionally charged for us, but that does not mean it's gonna be emotionally rich or emotionally charged for anyone else, unless we work on sculpting the story, crafting the story, rehearsing the story. You ever been to a dinner party where, well, maybe actually this happened to you because I've definitely done this, but maybe someone else uh, you know, at the dinner party says, oh my God, let me tell you what happened to me today. The most amazing thing. So I'm in the cab and, uh, you know, the driver said, and then he goes on this long story. 10 minutes later, everybody at the table is looking at this person with a, just a blank stare. Check no out. idea what's happening. <laughs> just waiting for it to end. And then realize the person who's telling the story realizes, oh, oh okay. Yeah, nobody's listening. Okay, you know what? You had to be there. You just had to be there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If you ever tell a story and end with you had to be there, it's a little bit like telling a joke and then explaining the joke afterwards. Explain <laughs> the joke, it, it didn't work. Or if you have to you tell people oh, you had to be there, then the storytelling didn't work. So just because something happened to us doesn't mean that it's ready to affect other people. So when you think about storytelling, one of the most important aspects of storytelling is influencing how people feel. Very often when people tell stories, they focus on the information that they're sharing. But just the sharing of information doesn't often affect people. It doesn't change the way they think and it doesn't change the what they do. If you wanna change how somebody thinks, first, you need to change how they feel. Mm -hmm. So first we change how they feel, then we change how they think because they will give us an opportunity to, they will drop their filters. You know, we all know that eating a large pizza and a Big Mac in is one delicious. is delicious, <laughs> but not healthy. So we know it's not great for us. And obviously if we do it in moderation, no problem. But let's say, you know, we're not actually really healthy or let's say we've got some pounds we have to lose, but we still eat the food. We know we shouldn't be doing it, but we still do it. Until we change how we feel about it, we're not gonna change what we're doing because we haven't changed what we think about it. So if you keel over tomorrow from a heart attack and live, thankfully, well, you might feel differently about putting that food in your body. And as a result, you may change how you eat. So it always starts with the feeling. So 
every story, every story has a structure. Now there are many different storytelling devices, but fundamentally, no matter what structure or device, no matter what type of device you use to tell the story, the structure includes three acts. And this three act structure was named by Aristotle. So it's been around for a long time. And in fact, he didn't necessarily make up the structure. What he did is he recognized, oh, when people tell stories, this is the structure they use. Act one is exposition. It's the given circumstances. It's the time, the setting, the place. It's what the listener needs to know or understand in order to know or understand what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, okay. if you have too much exposition, you know, right. people are sort of looking at their watches going, come on, I'd like something to happen. Please, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's move it along. It's sort of like watching a French film. <laughs> You're like, please, something's gonna happen at some point, I hope. Yeah. Now, if you don't have enough exposition, then people are confused. And they're thinking, wait, why are they in bed? I thought they were siblings. Now that also <laughs> might be a French film, but that's another story. So you do need just enough exposition so that they understand the inciting incident and what's to follow. So the inciting incident, incident is what starts act two. Now, act two is all about the conflict. The inciting incident creates conflict. Now, here's the thing, that conflict creates action. That action creates more conflict. That conflict creates more action. Mm -hmm. And that action creates more conflict. Eventually, you'll get to a resolution, which is act three. No, it's very, very simple. It's very actually short and clear. Resolution happens like that. It could be a happy ending, like a Disney movie. Everybody walks off in, into the sunset. But it could be, you know, like a Quint Quentin Tarantino movie. There's one person, you know, with a, a, a bullet ho hole in their leg, limping away, dragging a bloody sword, leaving a trail of 20 dead bodies behind them. This is why I don't watch Quentin Tarantino films. But that's a resolution. <laughs> so, so the resolution uh, can be anything, you know, that it, uh, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a happy uh, or a sad uh, uh, resolution. But the key is, if you're telling a story to change how somebody thinks, there often is, there needs to be an insight that the listener has either when they're hearing the story or after they hear the story, either during the story or after the story. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's a moral. Look, the moral of the story is dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's painfully obvious. Sometimes it's brilliantly obvious. Sometimes it's not immediately obvious, but then you unpack it. Mm -hmm. And so what we suggest people do is if there's a story that they want to tell because they want to influence how people think and what they do, to write down the story using the three-act structure. What's the exposition? What's the information that they need to know in order to understand what's about to happen in act two? Okay, what's the inciting incident? What creates the initial conflict? All right, once that conflict occurs, what action uh, is taken in the story that creates more conflict? They go through that whole process. You wanna find as much conflict as possible and as much action as possible, and you wanna raise the stakes. So the stakes are high because if the stakes are low, it's pedestrian. Nobody cares. Yep. People love 
conflict. Yeah. This is why people, this is why the news has become what it is today. You can sell newspapers, you can sell magazines, you can sell uh, news TV programs if, there's, if they're conflict rich. If it's just the information, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. This is a big problem we have, yeah. but that's not the problem we're here to solve. I just use it as an example to recognize that what keeps people interested is the conflict. And I so no conflict. People go, why do I care about this story? It doesn't really matter. Yeah. I love that you said that about the stakes because I think you're right in like the conflict and the action is where there's tension. And that's where people should be getting invested. And the resolution to me, it's like you should be, I guess my question is, are you changing people's, let's say hearts and minds with the resolution, with the tension, with the stakes, with the conflict, with the action, with all of it? Is there a point where it is, and this is when we get to flip the light switch? Is it a gradual, like, let's, let's pull this out and make them realize? Because I'm wondering if it just has to do with how you want to tell your story and what the story actually is, where, what that answer is, you know? Yeah, I think the answer is D, all of the above. Yeah. It really depends. The beautiful thing about this particular craft of public speaking and the sometimes frustrating thing about this craft of public speaking for many people is that there isn't one way to do it. Right. There isn't one formula that works for every single story, for every single person. And if there was, then everybody would tell brilliant stories. And that's just not happening. No, it is yeah. not. Now, this structure exists in every story. And if this structure, if you look at the story you're telling and you say, well, I don't really have a lot of conflict in the story, it may not be a story. Mm -hmm. It just, it may just be an anecdote. <clears throat> an anecdote is great. We use anecdotes all the time. But an anecdote and a story are two different things. And generally, an anecdote is just, you know, setting a, a particular uh, picture or an illustration or uh, just giving people a quick look into something. But a story is designed to change how they feel, which then changes how they think, which then changes what they do. Yeah. You know, I think if I think back about some of the guests we've had on this show, Michael, uh, that have, to me, been had compelling cannabis stories about their personal connection to the plant and things like that. They did have high stakes and they did have conflict and a resolution and, and a journey that got them to where they are today and a perspective on where they want to go tomorrow. And so it's kind of interesting to, to kind of reacquaint myself with that three act um, the stage thing again, because the good people do have that. They may not have it structured necessarily in a clean fashion like you do, but they have those key elements versus people that are like, yeah, I had some, I had some weed and I got couch lock and that's that, you know, like yeah. it's a different, <laughs> <laughs> different, different journey. And yeah. our last guest, Nikki Lolly, her story is, is has She's all incredible. those elements in there and she was a great guest. And yeah. so it is really fascinating to see the difference in, in people that follow, whether they knowingly or unknowingly follow that sequence. And knowingly is so much more important because imagine if you're going into a lawmaker's to, uh, office to lobby for legalization, like you're yeah. going in with your story to change policy. So mm -hmm. get that three act structured down and know where you're going to be going with it to make the biggest impact. Yeah, there's yep. something else that's worth considering if I may. Sometimes when people, tell a story that 
and they have an agenda. They want to change people's minds, especially something like cannabis, I think, uh, would fall into this category if you're going into a lawmaker's office and you want to change their mind about something. Sometimes when people structure the story or work on the story, organize the story, and then tell the story, they're trying to get the listener to tell them that they're right. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem with that is, what do people really mean when they say, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. They mean, I'd like to stop having this conversation. Now. <laughs> yeah, it's, go it's away just, now, please. Yeah, play purely, <laughs> purely dismissive. Yeah, That's yeah. it. Yeah. So instead of trying to be right, see if you can focus on getting the other person to say, oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. Because if you go in and sit down and talk to anyone, especially a lawmaker, and you tell them a story that they see themselves in or somebody they know in or they they see some sort of value they recognize a value that they have or that they share with you and they can say you know what that's right then you've got them mm -hmm. but if you're trying to prove that you're right that means somebody else is wrong and that means they are wrong and it's hard for people, it's hard, it's human nature, it's hard for people who feel like they've been told that they're wrong to change their minds and say, yeah, you're right. Very mm -hmm. difficult. And it's mm -hmm. probably extraordinarily difficult for politicians. Impossible. I think that's probably one of the hardest <laughs> things for them to do because I've rarely seen a politician ever say, you know what, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. Francesca made a great argument in my office three weeks ago, and I'm changing my vote in public now. It never happened. Because <laughs> <laughs> what you want them to do is you want it to be their idea. Yeah. So get them to agree to the point, not with you. It's now the story they can build from there. It's theirs. Yeah. As much as it is yours. They're the character in the story. Yes, exactly. There's yeah. something that they share with you that they got from that story that they can say, yep, that's, that's, me, that's me too. That's right. So mm -hmm. it's the idea that's right. It's not that you who told me the story is right. And I now realize I'm wrong. Very, very different. Mm -hmm. Such a good M distinction. It is. Michael, I want to get your thoughts on this, on the related as it relates to the storytelling and, and connecting and making impact. And it's related to the business side of communication, specifically with how people try to develop to develop and create a brand story. So just as a little background, what we hear a lot of for with, with our customers is then we talk to them about their products or let's say they're cultivators and they'll say, oh, well, this stuff sells itself. It's so good. It sells itself. And that's their brand story or oh, it's fire. My edibles are fire. It's, you know, it'd be great. And that is like a hundred percent of their calling card. And so we really try to push them to develop more, um, you know, better communication strategy, better brand story, better background of what's their why, all those types of things. But from your perspective, Michael, and, you know, I know you've worked with corporate and, you know, individual clients, is it a different recipe that a business should employ as they're trying to tell their brand story uh, in terms of connecting and differentiating, especially in a competitive, crowded, in, the, in, in this world, a state-specific audience? Well, I think you're 
you're right on the money, hit the nail on the head. Absolutely, I agree that this idea that, well, you know, uh, you know, our, our stuff is fire uh, is not enough. No. Because lots of people have got fire. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is when you are selling a product that even when it's not the best in the world, still works pretty freaking well. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's, that's hard to compete with. So ultimately any brand story is based on values, but, you know, just throwing some values up against the wall in a conference uh, room, you know, when you have your half day retreat and saying, well, you know what, we believe in equality. Boom. Let's put that one up there. That's one of our values. Oh, uh, we believe in stability. Stability. Boom, throw that up against the wall. So you do that, nobody gives a hoot. The the question is, do you actually have something to say? And do you actually care about people? Mm-hmm. You know, one of, uh, one of uh, our good friends, uh, one of our um, guest faculty members at Heroic Public Speaking, and somebody we've worked with, I wrote the foreword to his book, Think, Do, Say, is Ron Tight. And one of the things Ron Tight says, and I love it, it's so simple, he says, you either care about people or you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do care about people, how do you demonstrate that? How do you demonstrate that in a way that is undeniable? How do you make big, strong choices that some people may not like, but the people you are meant to serve will latch onto, Mm -hmm. they'll resonate with, and they will stick with you through thick and thin. But I don't think you can fake that. And I don't think just through some clever, slick marketing, you can affect that. It's pretty transparent. Yeah, it's yeah, very transparent. It especially really now when it's, oh, sorry, Nick, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, especially now when everybody's, I feel like since 2020, the summer of 2020 in particular, people are hyper aware and vigilant about performative uh, gestures and especially from businesses. Yeah, it's like, you know, you, what, what, what it was at Walmart recently that did like a Juneteenth ice cream flavor. Oh my God. Did you, did you hear this? <laughs> yeah, they did a Juneteenth ice cream flavor and then they took it off the day afterwards because of course people yeah, said, oops. what are you thinking? Yeah. yeah. Right. You remember you can go back to that, one of the Kendall Jenning, Jenning people, one of those. Oh, the, the Pepsi, Pepsi commercial. Yeah, the Pepsi commercial yeah. where the, it was bringing uh, cops together with activists. It was ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, jumping on the bandwagon of social causes is not uh, brand building. Yeah. Well, especially in the industry too, if you think about, they've always been like, we want to have more women in C in C suites and this and that. And then five years later, it's still not enough. And mm-hmm. so it is, it, it goes to your point, Michael, of if you're going to say you're going to do it, you damn well better follow through or else it's going to have a negative connotation on who you are as a brand and what your brand integrity is, let alone the products that you're putting on the shelves. Yeah. Brands have to come up with their brand stories. And we all know that deep down there are, their goal is to generate revenue. They need a good story that makes them good money. And so I think what you said is like, connect with the values that the company has or that the people in the company have is essential. And, you know, Mike and I work with a lot of small farmers, 
uh, you know, independently owned businesses. And that's, I think, sometimes an easier, sometimes harder to get to with them because you don't have the soullessness of a corporation to battle. Instead, you have almost like the thinking small, not being able to think about themselves in that light to mm. battle because they're just, they've never seen themselves as the center of the story. Yeah, right. so let me see if I can unpack something for you that may be relevant to this particular situation. So go for it. So the small grower might have a, a high level of expertise and they produce a great product as a result. So they see themselves as experts at producing that product. Mm -hmm. The issue today is that experts are a dime a dozen. Now, people who are listening who see themselves as experts are going, hey, hold on, buddy. Wait, what whoa, whoa, did you whoa, whoa. say? <laughs> but if you think about it, you can turn on YouTube and you can get a whole bunch of crap, but you can also learn from thousands of bona fide experts in yeah. almost any category imaginable. You wanna learn how to make a, a fiberglass surfboard from scratch? You can go on YouTube and learn how to do that. Find the expert. You wanna learn how to grow the best uh, plant in the world? You can go on YouTube and someone will teach you how to do that. So experts are everywhere. 30 years ago, totally different story because if you were one of the just handful of experts in your particular area, then you were a big deal. But now people have access to experts all over the world. And so relying on your expertise to drive a brand story is generally not going to land. You're, you're, because you're living squarely in what we call expert bill. Mm -hmm. Now, the people who tend to actually get the most attention, who can cut through the noise, are the people who move out of Expertville and into Visionary Town. Yeah, this now, is Visionary Town is a much better place to be. The, the streets are paved with all the product you could possibly ever imagine. That was, I just, that was, just three out of three. <laughs> it worked. Did that work? Okay. <laughs> Um, but um, but there, there are fewer people living in visionary town. So you have a lot more land to yourself because here's what the visionary does. Now the visionary, visionary is a big word. You might not immediately see yourself as a visionary, but this is, it's very simple. All a visionary does is challenge the status quo and offer a new or alternative approach. So if you want to build a, it's likely that most of the people that that are are small, either growers or um, distributors or whatever they're doing Pensary in the industry, owners, if they're yeah. in small, you know, if, if they're not big, massive corporations, most of them went into this because they're disruptors in some way. They yes. don't like the status quo. They want to challenge the status quo, and so. If you're going to challenge the status quo, what is your alternative approach? What's the what's the question that you're answering as a business that Google can't? Yeah, that's because the, if that's Google the can answer, then you're just squarely an expert, Bill. 
But if Google can't answer it, then you are a thought leader in your space as a visionary. And that's what people connect to. Yeah, Michael, the first time I heard you say that up at HPS in Lambertville, that really, that was the type of thing that resonated with me and made me really think at night and even, you know, after the event, as far as like, holy shit, I thought Expertville was the place to be. And then when, and it it did, it was one of those, those thoughts that the more it sunk in, the more it really helped to shape kind of how I approach different parts of the business, whether it's this businesses or others, and to help position you know, our business and, and in the case of like the sales joint, how to, how to help Francesca position herself, whether it's, it's on the show, whether it's on stage as that thought leader and as the visionary that's going to challenge and, and inspire others to want to get on board with, with what we're doing. And so I, I think that approach is so important and such a huge distinction. Well, let's mm-hmm. give the listeners some examples. You know, I don't, I'm not in your industry, so I don't know who the various players on are. On the periphery. Who are some of the vision, what'd you say? That's it, on the periphery. <laughs> on the periphery. Um, but who are some of the, the visionaries today? And who are some of the original, I mean, I know, I, I know the term OG. Yeah. Some of the OGs may have been the original visionaries. Yeah. And who are the yeah. visionaries now? So that when your audience thinks about them, they say, oh, I see. They challenge the status quo, they offer a new or alternative approach, and they really drive that message again and again and again. So who are those people? Guys, like I think legacy growers like uh, like John Capaldi out in uh, the Emerald Triangle, who's who that guy's been to prison, did his time, stuck to his guns, had a set vision. I mean, he's he's kind of like anybody can sing a song into a microphone, but there are a few David Bowie's. And that mm-hmm. that's who he is to, at least that's to me, one. you know, yeah. I mean, don't you think as it moves forward in time, also someone like burner would be in that. Burner's no definitely. question. He's changed the cultivation model. And- no question. He, he re you know, the rules were essentially rewritten and uh, for, for more people to have access. So it's to, to uh, Michael's point. Absolutely. And I think yeah. there's going to be in each state, different visionaries, because as more States come on board, you're going to see more people take, a leadership role in establishing the business, whether that's the social equity part of things, rewriting the laws or actually developing brands and um, doing the business. Look at Alex from C1D1. I think yeah. he's, he's visionary in the way that he is putting his safety first model and also- At low cost. Yep. At low cost, the affordability mm-hmm. of extraction and sort of demyth- demythifying- Mystifying. <laughs> Both. He's demystifying and demythifying <laughs> the, the idea that CO2 extraction is the only clean form yeah, to yeah. have because that is what keeps the the bar so high and keeps people out of. And he's mm-hmm. saying, no, that's not true. You can be clean through ethanol and da 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 da. And if you do safety first, and visionary, visionary, and here's how to do it. So yeah, they're they're definitely out there. And getting people to see themselves as visionary, I love the the answer a question Google can't, is yeah. a way to get people to um, almost like take down the pressure of being brilliant to just being more honest or more authentic um, in what they what they have to offer. Well, and I think this also is a great transition into the last question. I know we want to talk to Michael about which was 
people on stage. So, you know, having come to Lambertville and and see what you help people develop in themselves, um, I just assumed all public speakers, you know, in any industry would be really, really strong and well-trained and boy, was I wrong. So, (laughs) you know, especially in, in cannabis, and I'm not taking a shot at the industry, but what I am saying is that there's a very low bar to get on stage and deliver information. And so, and, and it borders on not even being expert, Bill, frankly. And so what we've tried to really do is, is especially because Francesca has been on the stage quite a bit this year with a lot booked already for next year is, is to help raise that bar and like do it by example. And so, you know, is there any, you know, for the audience out there, we have, I know we have some people that want to be on stage. Is there, aside from them signing up to coming to HPS, which they should which do. Which they should do. <laughs> Absolutely. It, you know, what is, do you have any specific tips for how you would give somebody, this is like a, the, the cocktail type thing. Somebody comes up, Hey, give me three things I should do to be a better speaker. Sure you <laughs> Since you're the expert. <laughs> yeah. you know, he's a visionary. He's the visionary. He's not the expert. <laughs> which is, which is why I say, no, I will not give you three tips because you know, people like this is, this is people say, what do I do with my hands? What, what should I do with my hands? I will never tell you what to do with your hands in a million years. And if you, if you go find a public speaking teacher who tells you what to do with your hands, run. <laughs> run as far away as you possibly can. Because if you're focused on things like what to do with my, your hands, you're entirely externally focused on yourself rather mm. than how you're trying to make the audience feel. And if you are well-prepared, you will never need to think about what you're going to do with your hands because you're so connected and you're so in the moment that what your body is doing is completely organic to how you feel and how you want them to feel. Just like right now, I'm moving my hands around because I'm excited about what Mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I'm not thinking about what to do with my hands. That would be ridiculous. (laughs) So there's no need to do it on stage either. So here's the thing. When you think about it like this for a second, when, when people are, are asked to do a presentation or when they ask to do a presentation, generally what's the process for preparation? Generally, it looks something like, I got to come up with a title. You come up with a sexy title. It's got to be hot. It's got to be cool. It's got to be you know interesting. So people want to come. All right, check. And then they say, oh, I need a slide deck. So let me go to Google. First, I got to open up you know, PowerPoint or Keynote and I got to go to, let me find some slides, maybe some funny pictures. Uh, I'll put some, um, put some like, you know, quotes on the slides and then, Million you know, words. then I'll do some bullet points. Bullet <laughs> points are always good. Maybe some animation. That's pretty cool. Make it look really good. Focus on that for a while. And once I have that, you know, then I'll just be able to use that uh, in my presentation as my notes, you know, like cue cards. And yeah. then I'll just be able to talk to them about, all this stuff following along with that presentation. That's okay, it. And they actually get to the day of the presentation and they're often really nervous because they're winging it. They really don't know exactly what they're going to be doing. And they generally will go over time, 10, 15 minutes or so because they are not getting in all the things they wanted to say and the way they wanted to say it. And they don't think that they're actually uh, uh, achieving uh, the goal and the audience seems distracted or not really connected. So they just keep going until hopefully something will work. 
And then they walk off stage mm -hmm. and they, they, they think maybe they did a good job because they had a ton of adrenaline. So they felt like something was happening. But just because you had a lot of adrenaline does not mean the audience felt the same way. Yeah, they're asleep. Now, think about anything that you've ever done well in your life. I mean, really well, that you have either at least competency over or maybe even mastery over. Is that something that you just winged? You're like, well, let me just see how it goes. Or is that something that you prepared for and that you trained for and that you spent time on? Of course. No, sometimes what happens is because, as I said earlier, we talk all the time, we know how to do it. We think we have a level of expertise uh, that makes it easy to talk about what we know, we think that's enough to give a presentation that changes the way people see the world. But it's a false security. If instead you think about it as a craft, well, that might change your perspective. Because when you look at the best performers in the world, whether they're public speakers or actors, you might look at them and say, man, it looks so easy. Like that, they, right. just, they just can do that. You know, they're just they're a natural. natural. Yeah. yeah natural. Wow, holy cow, it's so easy for them. It is because they have done an enormous amount of prep work. Their process for developing that speech was dramatically different than this process that I just outlined, which is the typical process that most people use. So for example, when you start working on a speech, you don't just start writing the speech. You start with an ideation phase and then a content development phase and then a script writing phase. And then you just have a rehearsal ready draft. Right. And then you put together a rehearsal schedule and you start uh, working through that script, through that rehearsal schedule so that you know that material so well that you don't need to think about it when you're on stage right. such that it comes to you organically in the moment as if it's the first time you've ever done it even though you know exactly what you're going to do right and the way that you judge your success as a performer is not by whether or not the audience leaps to their feet and gives you a standing ovation or tells you you're incredible instead you judge it by did i do exactly what i planned on doing did I do what I planned on doing? If you had no plan, then you can't actually do what you planned on doing. You had no <laughs> oh, plan. That's interesting. What a great measure yeah. that does not allow you to skirt the system. Yep. And, and it takes the focus off of seeking approval. Mm -hmm. Because one of the hardest things about speaking for many people is the fear of rejection. You know, we're afraid people are going to tell us that we don't know what we're talking about, or that we're boring, and they're going to reject us and our ideas. And that's more likely to happen if you're unprepared. But even so, if your focus is on the need for approval, then your work and your focus is on yourself as opposed to the audience. Mm -hmm. So the two best ways of reducing stage fright or anxiety around performing, number one, Know what you're going to do before you do it. So be prepared. 
anytime you want to do something for the first time, if you prepared for it, you'll be less nervous if, than if you didn't prepare for it. And number two, take the focus off yourself. Take the focus off, how do I look? How do I sound? Are people going to like me? Take the focus off the need for approval and focus entirely on influencing how they feel, how they think, and what they do. It is. So your drive, your fight is for them, creating a transformational experience for them. It's not about you. It's never been about you. It's always <laughs> about the speech that you give in service of that audience. And if they don't love every element of that speech, no problem. It's not that they don't like you. There's nothing wrong with you. It means that element of the product, which is the speech, just needs more work. Yeah, I like the whole, it's not about you. It's never been about you. And I feel like that should be on the back of your HPS t-shirt. <laughs> no, that, that, that makes me think, we're, I know we're coming up against a, a time crunch uh, with, with Michael. And again, we, we're, gracious, we're grateful for your time. Michael is a former uh, literature teacher, drama teacher here. I was hanging on every word when you were talking about your Aristotelian uh, narrative structure and stuff. I, I have to tell you this, you, you need to be proud. There, there's proof in the pudding. When Francesca does uh, speak, uh, it, it, something happens in that room. People come back to our booth. And, and I don't see people follow up and engage like that. So that's a testament to the training that Mike and Francesca received uh, under you and Amy up at HPS. So we, we know you're doing great work. And since we are a show that we, we tell our uh, audience what to do with their hands all the time, if they get their hands on a keyboard, how do they find you and HPS? <laughs> Plug away. You are clever. Very well done. Nick. I wonder where that was going. He's the so, best. <laughs> yeah, we're really easy to find. HeroicPublicSpeaking.com. HeroicPublicSpeaking.com. Now, here's the thing, Nick. Uh, Heroic Public Speaking is primarily a referral-only organization. Gotcha. So uh, we save 5% of the seats in our events for people who don't have a referral. But once we talk to them, we know that it's the right place for them and we can help them achieve their goals. But if you do want to come and do some work with us, just contact Mike or Francesca and they can make the referral directly to us. We'd be happy to have you at HBS uh, if you come with a referral through Mike or Francesca. Now, we, because we're a referral-only organization, we do a two-day event that we don't charge for. It's a very comprehensive, very complete transformational event that we call Heroic Public Speaking Core. And we ask people to put down a deposit that we give them back as soon as they walk in the door, because of course, you know, we gotta make sure that they're actually gonna show up. And, uh, and we always have more demand for those than we have seats. But we can do it totally free because everybody comes through uh, from a referral. And then usually 65 to 85% of the people who come want to continue to do work with us. It's, it's one of the things that I wow. think is unique. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just addressing this a bit because I think it's going to be relevant for a lot of the people who are listening. What we do is very unique. And even though we're professional communicators, it's very hard to really understand what we do without experiencing it. Yes. Agreed. Totally so, agree. Because, because you've never, if you've never experienced anything like it, just talking about it is not necessarily going to demonstrate yep. sure. you know, what it actually is. So we have a bit of a telling problem. So the answer to a telling problem is a showing solution. So that's why we do these events for free, but by referral only. 
Got it. So for those uh, folks who are listening, who do something that really is quite unique, you have probably a telling problem. So how do you create a model where you can use a showing solution to that telling problem? We'll be nice. clipping and quoting that for sure. That's oh a, yeah, that's a that's a new one too. I didn't hear that during my stay up there. Oh, the, the showing and telling part. That's nice. I like it, Mike well, Francesca. My person just special for your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have uh, uh, yeah, something for... special for you too. All right, Francesca, all right. fire away. Well, we like to to challenge all of our well the guests that we know we can challenge and ourselves with a little would you rather at the end of our interviews. So mm. one last question for you, Michael Port, is would you rather be able to read somebody's mind or be able to control their dreams? The oh, dreams that they have when they sleep. Absolutely. Read their mind. Absolutely. All right. Without hesitation. Really? Yes. Not into the subtle influence. <laughs> Such a no. But let me tell you about this very strange dream I had last night. <laughs> I'm reading your mind right now. I already know what you're going to say. <laughs> oh, good. Then I won't mention it. I'll, since you already know, you could tell Nick and Francesca later. <laughs> Mike, what would you so what do? Would I you want to hear this dream. Oh, yeah. I do want to hear the dream. the dream. Oh, I thought it was just so good. We leave it on that note. Oh, Let's do it. Okay. I think so too. Cliffhanger. Okay. Um, I so in, if I'm in that scenario, I am going with. Um, so my initial knee jerk was reading minds, but then I'm scared to death about what I'm going to find out. Like, wow, that's what they really think. Like, so that could be really <laughs> dangerous too. So, but I think I'm going to stick with read your mind. Yeah. Ooh, all right. I'm just intrigued by the nefarious line of questioning here. She's just, she's, she's invading the subconscious <laughs> yeah, Nick, regardless. Nick, you're screwed. I'm I know. <laughs> I know. I'm going to go with the uh, uh, mind reading as well, not to just keep up the same theme, but then I could just start conversations with, how dare you? And, uh, and, be great. and that would be, that would be a, a, a dream for me. Frank, Frank, what do you got? Wow. Um, I think. I'm going to have to go with controlled dreams. I think, I think I could become a little, I think it'd be selfish if you could read people's minds and what they're thinking. Cause then you just turn any conversation and, and that socially I think could be very destructive. So what? if I can control the exact point. Yeah. 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 But, <laughs> I think, I think yeah, Frank, you're a better person than all of us. Yeah. I did. Oh no, 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 no question about it. Yeah, no he is. Yeah. He should be on this podcast. <laughs> no, Doesn't want the some integrity. <laughs> Doesn't want to be the social. Francesca, status. what's your answer on this one? I think I know. I would definitely control dreams. Yeah, I'm far too anxious to read anybody's mind. I <laughs> I already think I can, and it's terrible. <laughs> so I just want to control dreams. I'll subtly influence and let you come to the decisions yourselves because it came to you in a dream. Good points. Good point. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Guys, this is this has been an absolute blast. And uh, on behalf of Mike Francesca and, and Frank and myself, Michael, as a former teacher, you always remember the 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 powerful, memorable, engaging teachers. And you've certainly left a, a, a tremendous impact on our friends and uh, and our audience today as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. I was looking forward to this all week. 
Oh, All right. So, so, so great to hear. All right, guys, this has been a blast. Mr. Michael Port of Heroic Public Speaking has been our guest today on the Infuse Show. We're going to see you on the next episode right here in Delahue, Delaware. Delaware. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.